Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me in Los Angeles is Nathan Fox. Busy, busy times these days, huh? Yeah, it is very busy. I was just getting off a call with the developers before we started talking uh, or recording this show. And I noticed that you've been getting a lot of requests to write out more written explanations for the LSAT demon at lsatdemon.com. So that's been cool to see that develop. Yep. I'm going to go to the world's nicest Starbucks, which is just blocks away from my house. And uh, it's a torrential downpour like for the, these few days here in LA. So I'm going to be inside watching the rain and watching all the people and at, at the world's nicest Starbucks and just writing a bunch of explanations. So it should be a nice day. So it's raining. I don't feel like that happens very often in LA. Dude, it's been dumping rain. We, it It's like we're sort of LA weather is sort of like you get the monsoon season every once in a while. It doesn't do it every year, mm. but when it rains, it tends to rain a lot like for just days. Um, mm. That said, it did clear up for a couple hours yesterday and I was able to go for like a hour and a half hike, you know, in the middle of the day and take like amazing photographs of the sunset and stuff. So it's, it's still California. It's still Los Angeles and it's still not ever freezing, you know? <laughs> so I'm bitching for no reason. Uh, uh, it's, it's still pretty nice, but no, we do get, we do get sheets of rain, uh, every once in a while hmm. we get real big rain years and then we get just nothing at all for like four years in a row. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. What's on the show today? So we're going to jump into LSAT fundamentals for games. We're just going to start giving all of our advice about games. And then we're going to tackle a GPA addendum from a listener. And we have not read it yet, but it looks like it could be too long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was my first thought. I glanced at it and I was like, whoa, this is an addendum explaining your GPA. Why is it the length of a personal statement? So yeah, Yeah. we're going to... Dig in, see what's going on there. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to say less. Actually, it's almost always better to say less. <laughs> yeah. um, if you guys have any questions for the show, email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. Um, include your selfies if you're so inclined. Uh, we like including those with the show notes that we send out to y'all. You can listen to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, uh, and even just thinkinglsat.com. I guess we just talked about the LSAT demon. What's this say? Praise the demon graphic was from oh, James. I was stumbling last time trying to figure out who made that really awesome praise the demon graphic. The one oh, that yeah. um, I'm going to get a huge tattoo of. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, it was James Tuller who uh, sent that in. And I just wanted to make sure that James got credit for that work because it was amazing. And I believe that James is going to make some tweaks to it. I, Of course, I can't just you know take a gift uh, well, instead, I had to say like, "Hey, you know, here's the ways that it could maybe be made better." But he responded; <laughs> he was nice about it, so and said he was going to work on it. So anyway, I wanted to make sure that James got uh, credit for that because it really is awesome. If and then, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, we're going to do Facebook Live for uh, the tattoo. Oh, sh- oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, we will be live streaming uh, me getting a giant praise the demon tattoo. <laughs> oh, where are you gonna get it? <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm playing. I don't think that that's actually gonna happen. But we oh, are gonna do to it, Nathan. <laughs> we are gonna do a, a a Facebook Live thing, aren't we? 
We are, yeah. So Wednesday, February 20th at, I think, 1.30 Eastern time, which is 10.30 a.m. your time. We're doing a Facebook Live event on a weekday, so we're expecting that everyone's going to be tuning into this from their from their offices, from well, their shitty supposedly, jobs. supposedly, yeah, a lot of people do tune into Facebook Live on their lunch break. So it will be... A little late here on the East Coast, early on the West Coast, but maybe people will make time and hop on. But the advantage to doing that is that you can then ask us questions and we will respond in real time. And Amazing. And part of the show. Yeah. Amazing. Um, that sounds great. I, I'm looking forward to that. What are we going to talk about? Do we have a title for that or is it just... Yeah, so the it's just Thinking LSAT Live, but the, I think the focus for this particular broadcast or this first attempt, this launch, if you will, is uh, just do it. Okay. I, I feel like I've heard that somewhere else before. Is that Did we invent <laughs> that ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I think we did. I thought I thought that we came up with that. Um, we should t- trademark that quickly to make sure no one else yeah, does it. Yeah, quickly before yeah. anyone else takes it. Um, it's a good phrase, though. Honestly, right? Just do it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about like motivational issues for the LSAT, how to get started, mm-hmm. what to do right now if you're feeling, you know, bummed out about your LSAT life. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. That'll be fun. Exactly. That'll, that'll be yeah. awesome. Yeah. People need to register for that or how do they how do they tune into that? Yes. We will be sending out an RSVP just so we have a sense of how many people are coming and we can email them updates on when exactly we go live. So, so. go to our Facebook page and you'll see information about that. Also, yeah. we're all over Instagram, Twitter these days. So um, whatever your favorite social media platform is. All right, so we are going to Vegas, and we're going to do another live class. We've talked about this before, but for all those Dude, who don't I, know. I can't wait. I don't understand why I can't hold the dates in my head. What are the dates again? <laughs> I just told you like five minutes ago. Um, yeah, so it's Saturday, March 16th, and Sunday, March 17th. 16th and 17th of March in Vegas. What are people going to get if they sign up for that class? Oh, by the way, we extended the uh, discount, huh? Because we're just too generous for our own good. <laughs> That's right. So um, now you can get $100 off for the class all the way up until February 20th. A lot of people have already taken advantage of that, and we're excited to meet you all soon. You're going to get two full days of class. For it, The class is $395, but if you sign up before February 20th, it will be 295 If you happen to be a LSAT Demon subscriber at lsatdemon.com, or taking one of our live classes or our online classes, you can get an additional $100 off. That would make the class $195. I guess our goal here is just to try to pack the house, right? As big as we can. And that's well, it's just, uh, it's going to be super fun. People are already talking about it on the Facebook page. We're not doing these classes to try to get rich. We want to pay our expenses and, uh, and have a good time teaching. We, I mean, I don't know, Ben. I just love teaching with you. It's fun to get in the same classroom. Uh, with you and the listeners are always they always make a, a very um, smart and fun class yeah. so I think it's going to be awesome for people who are taking the LSAT in March um, it'll be a nice little last you know final push and for people who are um, prepping for June it's going to be a great place to start too we're going to go over did we decide what prep test we're doing no but I think it's going to be prep test 86 
Okay. So it'll be whatever the most recently available prep test is, and we'll teach through all four sections of the test. We'll also have additional games and LR questions and all sorts of uh, extra stuff to, uh, to give you. But, um, and there's, there's already people doing the homework and stuff, right. Who have signed up and we've been shipping them books and there's stuff that they can do right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as soon as you sign up, you get access to the online version of the class, which includes some pre-class homework that is optional. But look, you want to get started, you're ready to go, do it now. Um, you also get access to a lot of our videos for past tests and so forth. So you can just hit the ground running. Perfect. Sign up now, book your uh, flight, book your accommodations, and we will see you in Vegas. Go to thinkingelset.com yeah. to sign up. Sorry? Oh, I was going to say, where can they sign up? But it sounds like... Yeah, thinkinglset.com to register for that, and we'll see you there. Okay. I want to make one more announcement, actually. On February the 21st, I will be at the University of Utah delivering a talk called Big Changes to the LSAT in 2019. If you're a faithful listener of the show, you've already heard all of the uh, updates about the conversion to digital in July with the free cancellation and the free retake and all that. Uh, You've also heard that they are separating the writing sample from the LSAT proper in June, but uh, I'm going to go meet up with the uh, fine folks at the U of U pre-law student society and deliver uh, basically the talk that Ben and I delivered at George Washington uh, last week. Ben, of course, you're welcome to fly out to Utah if you want to come give that talk. But uh, since it's on the West Coast, I know it's a little bit of a challenge for you to hop on a plane. Okay, cool. Uh, and there's a, there's an RSVP for that as well, which will be all over the social media everywhere and thinkinglset.com. So if you want to register, if you're anywhere Utah adjacent and you want to come see me, um, love to have you. Cool. All right, so um, let's jump into this. LSAT fundamentals for games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. So this is part of our ongoing series where we are, I've really been enjoying it, Ben, like sort of starting over from from the basics. I mean, we've been, each of us have been teaching LSAT full time for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And sorry, each of us has been teaching LSAT full time for 10 years. And we do things differently now from the way we used to do it at the beginning of our career. I I'm amazed at how much it's changed. Oh yeah. You know, sure. I, I just used to like have all of this sort of received wisdom uh, of, of like, here's how LSAT shit is supposed to happen. And then doing it full time for a decade has, has really changed my mind and working with you has changed my mind a lot about how I approach the test. So we're sort of talking through each of the sections, uh, and we'll, we'll continue to, to go into, um, finer detail, but we're sort of trying to, to, to talk about the first stuff first. So mm-hmm. today we're going to talk about games and on games, I just, I'm interested in how, you know, what do you do? <laughs> Your students are always afraid, right? About games. Games is the scariest part. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, when it comes to learning the games, the first thing I do in class is I give them a game and I just tell them to give it a shot and fail because uh, there are definitely some people who are like, but but I, I don't know how to approach games or I, I don't know how to diagram. And what I want to say back to them is, yeah, that 
I expect that. I, I don't expect you to know anything. We haven't talked about anything. I just said hello, and this is the first class. And I want you to try to do this game and just fail at it and get used to failing. Just try to solve it the best way you can. And then I walk around the class and I start looking at what people are doing, and they tend to do the same sort of mistakes. And when we start talking about the game, I start pointing out some of those things. Like I say, hey, look, uh, some of you took these verbal rules and you just wrote them down uh, in shorthand. And we want to move away from text and we want to start thinking about like what's visually going on here and try to come up with some visual representation so we can mentally see these pieces moving on a game board. That's kind of how I think of it. It's kind of like checkers or something like that. And I just want to see the pieces and I want to see the slots that they might be able to go into and then start figuring out what these rules are telling me about these these uh, variables. Yeah. And once we start moving them around and we set up all the rules, uh, you know, most people are ready to jump into the questions. And at that point, it's still like, wait a sec, let's think about these rules because right now it feels like there's so many different ways that these variables can be moved around. But the reality is that when you start focusing in on the rules, a lot of times these variables can't go in that many places and there aren't that many options. And so you can really start to dominate the game before you even get into the questions. I really like this idea of failing and getting used to failing. Mm-hmm. It, one thing that I always point out is that games is the hardest section for most people when they're just starting out. And in fact, it can be cripplingly difficult for people when they're first starting out where they'll just give up. You see people mm-hmm. do this in, in I see people do this in class all the time when I give them like their first practice test. Yeah. 35 minutes and they just won't even spend the 35 minutes still working on it. Yeah. They they just are like, they throw up their hands and just like, I can't do this. Yeah. And they don't, nobody ever does that on reading comp. Nobody ever does that on logical reasoning. Um, Mm -hmm. But on games, it's so unfamiliar for many people that they will just totally bounce off of it and just not be able to even attempt it. Yeah. Um, But I love to point out to people that, um, yeah, we're going to crash and burn on this first one, but Games is also the section where people tend to make the biggest improvements. And if anyone is ever going to get to the point where a section is easy and they score perfect on it every single time, that's also the logic games. Yeah. So games, we, we need to start thinking of this as a big opportunity for improvement. I mean, some people can improve their LSAT score by 10 points just by figuring out the logic games. Mm-hmm. I've seen people all the time go from, um, you know, that, that girl, uh, Stephanie, who came and said hi to me at George Washington, the one who's, uh, you know, a lawyer now. Um, yeah. She was super, super afraid of games when she started. She even mentioned it to me that she had started with four points on her first game section mm-hmm. and ended up scoring perfectly on her actual LSAT. Yeah. When I asked her how many games she did, she could only respond with a lot. <laughs> like she looked at me yeah. and said, I did a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if that meant she did all of the games that were available, but the point is you can start off absolute shit 
Mm-hmm. I mean, because four points is actually randomly guessing, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. if you get four points, you've added no value to your expected mm-hmm. value in 35 yeah. minutes. But you you can learn how how to do these games, and you can improve all the way up to perfection. And that's uh, that's sort of like number one thing I want to beat into people's head about the logic games. Yeah. So, so then, okay. So then you're walking around the room, you you're looking over people's shoulders, you start talking about common mistakes. Where, where do you go from there? So for that first game that we do together, in most cases, it's an ordering game. Games in my mind fall into three broad categories. Basically games are asking you to order stuff order people in a parade or order um, boxes in a delivery schedule or something like that, or group things together. I usually just think of them as people, even if they're not people, but they're trying to take a a group of seven people, for example, and sort them into three teams or something like that. And then there are games that try to do both. Now, there are other random games out there, but the vast, vast majority of games are either asking you to order things group things together or both. And so when we start in that first game, since about half the games on the LSAT are just straight up ordering games, um, in most cases it tends to be an ordering game. And I just say, hey, look, here are these people and they want us to order them. And so then I just start, let's say there's seven people, I just start drawing seven slots, seven dashes from left to right on the board and saying, look, I just have to now figure out what order these people go in from left to right. And let me come up with some visual representations for these rules. Like if they tell me that L has to come before K, I'm going to put L to the left of K and then a, a dash. I know I think you do dots or something like that between the variables, but I'm just trying to show that, look, this thing has got to come before this at some time. So now I've taken a textual rule and I've turned it into a visualization that I can now see and I can move away from the text. Okay. And don't you think sometimes it's just simple enough that you can just do it in your head? (laughs) Um, My goal is to do enough written work up front that I can do a lot of the work in my head later. But I'm definitely not going to do all the work in my head. That would be, that would, I would just never do that. That would be difficult. But um, what's interesting to me is if you do enough written work, you get it to a point, especially with worlds or something like that, which we'll, we'll definitely talk about at that point, the, 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 possible scenarios are almost complete to the point that you don't need to draw anything else. And that's why it goes so fast if you do the work up front. Yeah, that I, I definitely didn't mean that, you know, um, students sometimes because they think they have to be in such a hurry, mm-hmm. they, they think, Oh, well, you know, I'll just do, I don't have time to write all that out. So I'm just going to try to do that in my head. Yeah. But it, it's sort of a core principle of the games that you, you actually will do them faster if you write more down. As a matter of fact, I can look over people's shoulders and just by the, there's two factors that are important. If they've written a lot, that's generally good. Mm -hmm. As long as it's really neat and organized. Mm -hmm. If they have a whole bunch of sloppy stuff all over the place, that's not really generally good. 
But if I see like neatly organized sort of straight lines, straight columns. Yeah. And there's a lot of work on the page. That's almost always high, if not perfect accuracy Mm -hmm. and ends up being fast as well. Now, I guess I do need to clarify the difference between work that you did up front and work that you did on questions. Mm-hmm. When, when I see a whole lot of work that I can tell it was only for number 17, yeah. especially when I see work that is clearly related to answer choices, mm-hmm. then I know that this person is struggling and they're doing it a little too frantically. Yeah, they're not doing enough work up front. You do more work up front and you can do almost no work in the questions. I want to point out that you you can brute force these games like you you know with no with no work up front you can go into the answer choices and just test all five of them and figure out which answer is correct. Mm-hmm. But it requires a lot of work and a lot of time to do it that way. And the whole point of teaching you how to do good diagrams and make inferences up front is to save you all of that time and effort later when you're answering five or six or seven questions. Yeah. Yeah. The way I look at it is the work up front is meant to do two things in my mind. Most of these games have between four and eight variables or something like that. And um, between two and five rules something like that, right? And when I'm given those variables and those rules up front, and then I start writing down the rules and trying to figure out what has to happen because of those rules, um, before I go into the questions, my goal is to get rid of rules and to get rid of variables. So for example, if you're looking at a simple ordering game that has seven slots from left to right, and you're trying to figure out the order of these seven people. And we know that K and L, for example, have to be next to each other. And let's say that there are some other slots that are taken. Well, because K and L are together, like right next to each other, they could be in slots one and two, two and three, three and four, and so on. But if Let's say that they can only go in four places, given the other rules of the game. By creating four diagrams, one with K and L in one of those slots, and one with K and L in another one of those slots, and so on, what I've effectively done is I've gotten rid of that rule, and I've gotten rid of those variables, because I never have to think about that rule or those variables again, because those are the only four possible locations for K and L. And I've now put them into slots. And so it's like I'm reducing the amount of information that I have to process every time I do a question when I start creating these scenarios based on these rules or variables. We need to talk a lot more about worlds, like different ways that you triggers, you know, common triggers Mm -hmm. for worlds. Mm -hmm. We need to go through all that. But let me give you one common objection that students give first. And let's talk about this for a minute. Yeah. Students frequently say, Oh yeah, all I need to do is just get the set as long as I have the setup, then I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that? Well, um, like if I just knew what sort of setup to use, then I'd be I'd be ready. I'm fine. I'm f- once I see the setup, then I'm fine. Yeah, I mean <laughs> having the setup is a 
is very helpful. But if you don't take the time to think about what those rules do uh, together, if you just think about the rules, I think in most cases when people say that, they're just thinking about how do I represent these rules? How do I write down the rules? And once you've written down the rules, that's a big step in the right direction, but you still have all those rules in play. So when you go to your first question or your next question or whatever, you have to work through each of those rules every time, which is now going to force you to spend time testing out things that you might not need to test out if you got rid of those rules and those variables by putting them into worlds. Or yeah, at least, we're, yeah. we're, right. We're looking for a solution to the puzzle. And worlds is commonly the best way to solve the puzzle because you can just bake the rules right into your solution. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I want to push back on with these students who say, oh, all I have to do is get the setup and then I'm fine, yeah. is, yeah, that's the game, essentially, is to get the setup. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I think people make a big mistake. Ben, you, you started by talking about putting things in order, putting things in groups, and doing both of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to make it clear, you're not like real big on hey, let's memorize a bunch, of, a bunch of game types and a bunch of semantics about having a whole bunch of different game types, right? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, there are books out there that say there's, you know, <laughs> standard sequencing, complex sequencing, unbounded ordering, you know, it's just like... <laughs> Overfunded, underfunded... <laughs> um, there's books like I found it laughable when thinking about it now, you know, like look at the power score Bible that mm-hmm. talks about games where you can identify the templates or identify the scenarios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not a type of game. That's a technique. What they're talking yeah. about there is making worlds. Yeah. That's not a type of game. And people, so people start thinking falsely, oh, well, there's this category of games where you make worlds. Like there's a category of games where the select, where the correct setup involves worlds. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not, so they're thinking about it. They're thinking that this is something that is like established by the game itself. Yeah. And that this is like a type. It's the problem with doing games by type. Too, if you're drilling a whole bunch of sequencing games in a row and then you're drilling a whole bunch of grouping games in a row, well, you know that those are sequencing games or you know that they're grouping games. On the test, it's not going to say sequencing at the top of the page. Yeah. On the test, it's just going to start giving you a situation and you have to solve it. So figuring out what type of an attack to use is a critical skill. And it's also the case that many different approaches will work on the same game. And what you really have to do is just learn to do something. (laughs) You have to learn to go into attack mode on these games. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the whole (laughs) question type issue too, because as you were saying at the beginning of these fundamentals, uh, a long time ago, like seven years ago, I make all my curriculum for class so i took all the ordering games from old tests and put them together in a book and then all the complex ordering games and then (laughs) and then all these like grouping games and in-out games and 
Um, I had fewer types than some of these other people had, but I still had, I don't know, like five or six. I don't even remember them now. But I put them all into a book, and class went really well on one level, right? Like, I get up there, and it's like, hey here's an ordering game, give it a go. And then it's like, let's do another one. And everybody's like, yeah, like this makes sense. And, and and part of the problem is that if you do an ordering game and then you're about to do 12 or 15 more ordering games, before you even read the game, kids are like, oh, it looks like there's seven variables. So I'm going to start writing out my seven lines. There's there's a big handicap that they don't realize that they're getting. And... <laughs> And then what would happen on Saturdays when we were doing practice tests is they'd be like, I just, I had no idea what type of game it was and I didn't know what to do. And so I just like completely bombed it. And there was this huge disconnect between how they were feeling in class and how they were doing on test day. And now it's like in class, just do this game and we'll talk about (laughs) what you should have done and why it makes it something that you might want to order stuff or why you might want to group stuff or both. Um, But now they feel like, oh, this is challenging, but that's a good feeling. I'm like, yeah, I want you to feel this sense of chaos a little bit because that means you're delving into a gray area, something that you don't understand, and now you're learning as opposed to just feeling great the whole time. The idea is that you learn techniques that can be useful in different combinations to Mm -hmm. solve the games, right? Mm -hmm. There are little tips and tricks. I have a little tip and trick that I teach that's called seat the assholes first, which Mm -hmm. is basically when you've got two groups and you got two people who can't be together, you know, you can reserve one seat in each of the two groups for the two assholes who have to be separated. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. a lot can happen from there. But that that seat the assholes thing, I mean, that's that's not a type of game. Yeah. It's not going to tell you on the page that that's what you're supposed to do. You need to figure out that that's a technique that might be useful to get you over this one you know obstacle in a game. Yeah. So the metaphor, I know I've said this on the show before, but I always talk about I want you to learn fundamental principles of cooking instead of memorizing recipes. Mm -hmm. Because if you Mm -hmm. memorize recipes, if you go in with like, well, I've got these 12 different types of games and I know what to do on those 12 different types of games, then all they have to do is throw one wrinkle where, oh, guess what? This doesn't fit into your 12 types of games. Mm -hmm. And now you're just completely frozen because you thought you had recipe, you know, I, well, I can't, I don't have the right ingredients to make this dish or any of the 12 dishes that I know how to make. And it's like, yeah, well, instead you should just have memorized a whole bunch of like tools that work in a variety of different situations and in a variety of different combinations. Yeah. And that way you can just sort of walk into this random unknown kitchen with random unknown ingredients and go, oh yeah, I mean, I, I could whip something up. Yeah. It's not that hard. These things go well together. So, so yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, I can see. Here's one little thing I could do. I'll do that. Then I'll, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. I see this other thing I could do. I'll do that. Oh, okay. It's starting to take shape. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's, <laughs> there's almost more curveballs than not on the LSAT, right? They, 
they continue to just slowly, subtly evolve these games. Yeah. They're always throwing in new wrinkles. They're throwing in new types of rules. They're throwing in new types of questions. They're throwing Mm -hmm. in new types of setups. And there's just so many games that don't fit into any category at all. So we, I'm, I'm trying to teach people a flexible improvisational approach to the games that will work on any game, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. How do we get people there? What's the next thing we need to do? Well, I I think that one thing that might be helpful is just recapping the process here. So you're, you're reading the game carefully. Sometimes you need to read it twice, get your mind wrapped around the game, then start drawing visual representations of what you think is going on. And then once you're done drawing those rules, start looking for rules that relate to each other. I mean, as you get better at this, you'll see them as you draw them. But if you're just getting started, look at the rules and look for rules that deal with the same variables and ask yourself, okay, how do these rules relate to each other? If one rule tells you that L and K have to be together and another rule tells you that L has to come before J, uh, now you know that block L and K has to come before J. So try to put things together in that way. I think ideally, for me, ideally, you'll get to a point pretty quickly where you don't even bother writing each of the rules out individually. If You're going to notice that connection immediately. If, if they're giving you X before Y and also giving you Y before Z, I just don't want to see on the left-hand side of your page X before Y and then beneath that Y before Z. Oh, I, I agree 100%. You should, you should link everything together that you can as you go. And just do it right away, X before Y before Z. But even even when you're trying to do that, right, this is still something you want to stop and ask yourself, right? Like, when you're done with the rules, <laughs> do any of these rules connect to each other in a way that I didn't see as I was writing them down? It's an iterative process, right? So you're going mm-hmm. to make a link, and then you're going to go back through the whole list of rules, um, or mm-hmm. ideally, at some point, you're getting away from the words, and you're now on to just purely um, graphical representations of the rules, right? A picture that you're making. Mm-hmm. But anytime you make any inference at all, like X before mm-hmm. Y and Y before Z. Oh, X before Y before Z. Oh, shit. Now let me consider X before Y before Z mm-hmm. in light of all the other restrictions of the game. Yeah, Okay. exactly. The bottom line here is that you want to think you're writing down the rules. You're linking them together as best you can. And then you're still like thinking about the rules. And and some things that I'm looking for is I'm looking for rules that deal with the same variables. I'm looking for rules that are very constrained. So for example, two things have to be immediately next to each other, or they have to be exactly one apart or something like that. I'm also looking for rules that are conditional that say, hey, look, if F is second, then L is third. That's a conditional statement because it's an if-then statement. Um, things like that can then prompt me to start to consider worlds. I mean, I'm going to think about it every time. Can I create worlds here? And by worlds, I mean multiple scenarios that uh, rely on an initial assumption. For example, I think the best way to think about this is an example. If the game tells you that 
M can only go in the first and last slot, then M has only two options in this entire game. And so I might end up wanting to create two diagrams, one where M is first and one where M is last, if that's likely to lead to more inferences. And Let's, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Let's talk about exactly how people need to start doing that because I see, I see people frequently mess up. A, they think, I mean, they know that worlds are important because I keep talking about it, hammering on it in every single class. But they, they, they see, okay, M can only go first or second. And then what they do is they just start writing out M first. Yeah. And they, so they write M first and then they see what happens. Mm-hmm. And at that point they've already, they're, they're setting themselves up to make a really big mistake. What is that mistake? Well, so if you don't mind me stepping back for one second, I think there's, there's two things that they need to do. Okay. They see M has to be first or last and like they say, Hey, that's only two options. So they immediately start creating worlds for those two options and it's like, um, if M doesn't tie into any other rules, that may not be beneficial, right? If you don't see any immediate benefit from knowing that M is first or M is last, I don't know that I would jump and start creating worlds on the basis of M. I might look for something else to create the worlds on. Assuming that it does make sense or it looks like it might make sense to create worlds on the basis of M, what it you're has saying to, is also... So what you're saying there, just to make it clear, you're looking for other dominoes to be falling, right? You want, yeah. if I were to put M first and if I were to put M last, in at least one of those scenarios, I need to see other variables falling into place like exactly falling into place or immediately. else it, yes immediately or else it's not going to be probably worth it to make my split based on m maybe i should look for something else exactly like okay. if if you put m in first and you have to scratch your head for <laughs> a good moment to figure out what's going to happen next and you just don't see anything else that's going to happen next uh knowing that m is first is not helpful so creating a, a world where M is first isn't going to prove beneficial. Now, maybe knowing that M is last is immensely helpful. And right away, you know that, oh, well, that's going to force K and L into five and six or something like yep. that. That would be beneficial. But uh, sometimes people just like jump at the opportunity to create worlds because they're like, well, there's only two places for M. And it's like, yeah, so that's great. You'd only have to create two worlds. Um, but neither of those worlds are going to fill up very much. So... Maybe you should look for some other opportunity. So okay. that's problem number one. Problem number two, which is super common and what you were talking about, is people say, okay, M has to be first or last. It looks like it's going to be beneficial. In fact, if M is first right away, I see that F has to be third. So they create a diagram with M is first, and then they start filling it out. <laughs> and then either they forget to create the other world where M is last, or when they like go to create that world, they start making assumptions in that world that are not necessarily true. They're, yeah, they like F for, can't be third in that world. Yeah, or something weird like right. that. It's it's like what I do, what I always do is I say, mm, I've decided now to create worlds on the basis of M. So I'm going to create one diagram where M is first, and I'm going to create one diagram where M is last, and otherwise completely empty. Yeah. Like I'm just going to start with my two initial assumptions, and then I'll just start filling out whichever diagram is easier to fill out. I like to go for the low-hanging fruit. But the point is is that my initial assumptions have been established, M is first or M is last, so I don't ever like forget where I need yep. to start the other world or make assumptions that 
are like kind of conflate the two worlds in some weird right. way. Right. right. So to, right. So the first thing that would go on my page would be probably two sets of dashes for the spots. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then, and I, I would like to stack them vertically on top of each other if I could, assuming that I'm going to be ordering from left to right. Mm. I think I would probably make those two worlds stacked on top of each other so that I can, you know, cause I might end up subdividing one or both of those worlds later mm-hmm. and I might end up with multiple scenarios, right? So why not keep them in a column, like keep them in neat columns. But the first thing that goes on the page is M in one and M in seven or whatever last is in that game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I start filling in other stuff. And that way I now know that the, the awesome thing is you've already incorporated the rule. M must go first or last because you know, well, I've only got these two scenarios. Yeah. M first or last is baked into my diagram and then I can think about the implications. Yeah. And now that rule is gone too, right? And that variable. So you never have to worry about M again. You never have to worry about the rule that M is first or last because you're never going to violate that rule. That's right. Since you're going to be working out of a, a scenario where M is first and out of a scenario where M is last. And if you subdivide those worlds, um, you're still going to retain that assumption. So yeah. um, I, I just really, I like to think of it as like a computer, <laughs> like we're computers, right? And they gave us rules. And if you don't create worlds, then you have to process all the rules for every question as opposed to getting rid of rules and variables and having fewer rules to process. I mean, you know, when you create worlds and they ended up end up filling all the way out or getting very close to being full and the only things that are left are variables that are floating because they have no rules associated with them anymore, that means I don't have to process any rules as I go through the questions, I'm just looking back at my diagrams and saying, oh, well, I don't know how I got there, but that's not going to work. It doesn't work in any of my worlds, so that answer choice is wrong. Yeah, there can be five or six or seven questions, and now rather than have, having to process four rules for five or six or seven questions, you've fully baked those rules into your setup, your starting setup, and you might end up having to process zero rules as yeah. you answer those five or six or seven questions. And this is a, an example and it pops up over and over and over, but this is an example of where you invest the time up front, like a lawyer, you prepare, you, you work diligently and carefully and invest the time up front. And then you've solved the system and now answering each of the individual questions becomes trivial. You're mm-hmm. not, you're not being passive. You're not testing answer choices. Instead, you've solved the system up front, and then the whole thing just unlocks for you. And that's how yeah. you go. I mean, there's no way, Ben, I would finish a section in 35 minutes if I didn't make any worlds at all. Yeah. I just don't think that's, that's just not going to happen for me. I, I've, I've always made worlds. I do it more and more and more, I find. Mm-hmm. Maybe should we talk about other triggers for when you do make worlds? Yeah. So... So far, we've talked about where a variable could be in two, only two slots yep. or three slots or four slots. We talked about um, a block, like a pair of variables that have to be immediately next to each other. Why is a big block good? Well, because they're stuck together, there's only so many places that they can go in the game in general. Not only that, but when you when you make, let's say the, the block is uh, HG, you know, H mm-hmm. and G must go in exactly that order and they have to touch each other. Mm-hmm. 
HG, now they might be able to go in four or five different spots. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's scary, Ben. I don't want to make four or five worlds. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's funny because a long time ago, that's my that was my gut reaction, right? right. I would say, oh, okay, yeah. Let's see how many. Yep, they can too many like worlds. Five. Don't want to do it. Too many. Yeah, don't worry. Let's let's move on, guys. And then we just jump into the if questions, right? Like, or do the the traditional first question, then I yeah. do the if questions, and I still do that for games in which I don't do worlds. But it's like, wait a sec. There's only five options and if i know where hg goes given this other rule or these other rules um i actually end up knowing quite a bit and so i can get rid of a bunch of rules and now i just have these five diagrams and i'm just constantly checking back to them and and you know how many times too do you create five diagrams and then halfway through the the worlds you're like oh wait a sec this this fourth one is never gonna work So you cross it out. Totally. Now you really only have four worlds. Right. And and this is like real obvious, I guess. But the, the reason why making worlds based on a big block like HG, if they have to go together like that, you're going to now have, okay, yeah, you do have four or five scenarios, but you have two fewer variables to worry about in all four or five of those scenarios. You just know exactly where H and G are sitting. Not yep. only that, but you have two fewer spots in all four or five of those scenarios. Not mm-hmm. only that, but as you've already said, Ben, it's going to trigger other rules. Like, for example, if M has to go first or last, well, mm-hmm. in a bunch of those worlds where HG are, you know, HG is going to be, H is going to be in one in one of those worlds probably, and G is going to be in the last spot in one of those worlds probably. And in both of those worlds, the M is going to get triggered. Yep. Um, and now you don't have to worry about that variable or that rule. (laughs) Right. And then that can cascade it frequently. Just that impacts another rule, which impacts another rule. And now you end up, Oh, well, wow, boy, I never would have known that. But if HG are going, you know, whatever it is, HG are going first and second. Wow. My whole thing gets completed and then you have no more rules to process. So, okay. So that's what, so we've talked now about two things. If you have a variable that can only go in two spots, that might be worth thinking about. If you mm-hmm. have a big block that might be able to go in a handful of spots, that could be a good foundation for your worlds. By the way, if I was going to make those, again, the first thing I would do is I would write out a bunch of dashes, like probably in columns, keep it neatly organized, mm-hmm. and then put HG first and second, second and third, third and fourth, fourth and fifth. Yeah, you have to be very systematic about this. You want to make sure that you're covering all your potential options for HG, but nothing more. Yeah. I don't want, I just don't want these diagrams like flying all over the place, all over the page everywhere, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, or, cause let's, let's, we're going to build a starting diagram that we're going to potentially use to answer six, all six questions. Mm-hmm. So let's just take the time to make sure that it's neatly organized and, and well, well thought out first. Yeah, I like to think of it as dividing and conquering, right? Very cleanly and organized. Um, you're not, so many students will be like, oh, oh, HG can go in four places. Okay, but when HG is in second and third, man, that does a lot. So then they just like dot, draw that, set those seven slots, they put HG in second and third, and they fill out that diagram, and then it's kind of like, so wheat, what? what are you going to do now? You don't have the world where HG can be first and second. And so this world is kind of 
almost useless by itself. It just doesn't have the value of having all the situations right. and them organized neatly. If you're going to make worlds, you need to make sure that the worlds incorporate all of the possible different solutions. You're not allowed to just arbitrarily go, oh, well, HG first. Let's try that. That's not yeah. at all what this is. This is, let's try all the combinations for HG. That's that's your foundation. Yeah. All right. What other triggers uh, for making worlds? Okay. So another big one is if then statements. This has this has completely transformed the way I do logic games, by the way, and the way I teach logic games. Yeah. So if then statements can mess with people's minds because they make false contrapositives or false inferences on the basis of the if then statements. But if you're given an if then statement that says if H is in second, then L is in fifth, then there's only two situations that you need to worry about. One is when H is in second, and the other is when H is not in second. And if you if you think about those two situations, you've now eliminated the rule. Because when H is in second, the rule is triggered. And when H is not in second, the rule is as good as dead. And I think that's something that people have to come to accept. Like it's it's sort of interesting how people will like overthink this. They'll be like, well, wait, if H is not second, then what I mean, what if what if L is fifth or what what if it's not fifth? It doesn't matter. The rule if then statements only matter when the if clause is triggered. If the if clause is not going to be triggered, then the rule is as good as dead. And this is how you get rid of it. You create two worlds, one where H is second and one where H is not second. One where the rule is triggered and one where the rule is not triggered. And those are all the possibilities. Yep. And you start with that. So you make two worlds. I've got my H2 world and I've got my H not 2 world. Mm-hmm. And then what did you say, Ben? If H is 2, L has to be 5? That's right. So I'm just going to write L into the fifth spot in the world where H is second. Yep. And then in the other world, the rule has no effect because the rule only has effect when H is second. When H is not second, the rule doesn't apply. Yes, it, it might as well not exist. And so you never have to think about it. And so you don't have to think about where L goes. L is now not constrained by that rule. And the only thing that you have to note is that H is not second. You can't let H be second, but that's that's the definition of that world. So it's on the page. I wrote it down. I've got a no H two, you know, under the second yep. spot there. I, ben, for years I used to do these games with a whole bunch of conditional diagramming and contrapositives yep. and all that stuff. Yep. That was LSAT dogma ten years ago when we started our careers, right? Mm-hmm. I think it it's still useful to be able to do that notating. And in certain circumstances, I don't know if there were a bunch of these if thens that link together, mm-hmm. I might decide to just write out the chain. But these days when I see an, an if then a conditional rule, especially if there's only one conditional rule, I just almost immediately use that as my foundation to just make one world where it applies and one world where it doesn't apply. Exactly. It's so much easier. Cause like, here's the thing. We know that we want to make worlds anyway. We know that worlds are a very powerful technique that can just destroy a logic game. Mm -hmm. 
We also know that conditional rules can be a kind of a pain in the ass. It's real easy to confuse sufficient for necessary. If I wrote out the, the rule, you know, using my, if then arrow and my contrapositive and all that stuff. Yeah. If I wrote that out, I, I mean, I know I can do it correctly, but to teach novices how to do this sort of abstract notating is complicated. People can mess it up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's actually less stuff on the page to just make a world where H is due and a world where H is not due. It's so much simpler. If I, if I showed you both ways, you would be like, Oh, can I just do it that way? Yeah. (laughs) Cause not only does it eliminate the, if you write the rule and the contrapositive, now you have two rules. Yeah. And you have to continue to figure out how and where and when to correctly apply it as you solve all Mm -hmm. of the questions or as you continue making your diagram. Yep. If you use that as the foundation for your worlds, you immediately eliminate it from your processing load. It's just mm-hmm. baked into the solution. You have a world where it applies and a world where it doesn't apply, and poof, the rule ceases to exist. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. the rule, the rule is now gone because, yep. and, and you just now move on to the other rules and think about how they interact with each of these two scenarios. Uh, just to clarify, why the rule goes away. The reason the rule goes away is that in the world where age is two, you've applied it. You've put L in five. Yep. So you're never going to violate that rule. And in the rule in the world where H is not two, well, we don't know what happens when H is not two. The rule just said if H is two, then this stuff is going to happen. But if it's not two, we don't know what's going to happen. And since, okay, so the rule now doesn't matter. That's why it goes away. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah. So now you have like, you don't, (laughs) all you have written on your page is H is not second in the one world. And in the other world, you have H in second and you have L in five, just like you were saying. It's like, there's nothing written on your page compared to uh, writing out the if then rule. Perfect. Any other uh, common triggers for when to make worlds? Yeah. So in an ordering game, where you have maybe three or four variables linked together, right? For some reason, L comes before H, which also comes before F, which then comes before G. It's like you have these this line, yep. right? Now, you can have more complicated lines than that. But the idea is I tend to focus on the variables at the beginning or end of those lines. Like if you have seven, if it's a seven-slot game, there are seven people and you're trying to order them in a race, and you know that L comes before three other variables, well, then that necessarily means that L cannot be in the last three slots, so it can only be in the first four, right? And so I'm looking at L, and I'm saying, well, there's only four options for L, and one of those options is going to be extraordinarily constrained, right? When L is in four, then the three people who have to come after L are just going to line right up into slots. And so... It's not always the case that that's beneficial, but oftentimes it makes sense to look at the variables that come at the beginning or end of these like linear chains and basically say, hey, how many options are there really? Because there might be some other rule like M is second. So now M can't, L can't even go second. So it can only go first, third, and fourth. And like some of those worlds are going to immediately lead to inferences. So why don't I just create these three worlds and see what has to be true 
in those situations. Sounds good. Um, I think that that's about it. I think, I mean, I think that's the big triggers on when to make worlds. If you watch a whole bunch of videos, which videos are like really one of the best ways, if not the best way to learn how to do logic games, I think you'll see me sometimes making worlds in other ways. I guess numbers sometimes is a reason to do it. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. In grouping games. Yeah. So there's a grouping game where, you know, there's, it's either um, three people on the red team and two people on the green team or three people on the green team and two people on the red team. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's times where that would be really useful or let's say a different grouping game where you've got three groups and like group one has to have more than group two. Yeah. Sometimes I might make worlds based on how many things are in group one or on how many things are in group two. Because the sure. game tends to be really constrained, where if group one doesn't have very many things, then group two has to have very few things, right? Or if group two has more than one thing, then group three now has to have more than two th- things. And so you might see me making worlds based on the numbers. But yeah. I think that's about it for like common triggers. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I think we need to probably wrap up games here, but one thing, you know, if this is like the first lesson you've ever heard on games, your head might be spinning now because all this talk about worlds, how do we get better? Like what type of a practice do we want to build for ourselves in order to just make sure we're making forward progress on the games? What do we do to get better? Do one game a day and watch a video by one of us. (laughs) Okay. Just one. I would say, like, if you're starting out and games are a huge headache, then do a game and review it, watch the video, do it again, make sure you own that game, and then the next day, do another game. And if you can get that habit going, then, of course, over time, you'd start doing a lot more. But it's a, it's a simple goal. Yeah. And eventually start doing 35-minute sections. Mm-hmm. Of games because the, you know, the test is divided up into 35 minute blocks and you got to get comfortable with those so that you don't freak out when the ticking clock starts. But, um, when you're doing, let's talk about section strategy. If you are doing a 35 minute section, do I skip around in the section? Do I pick the easy game first? What do I do? (laughs) Yeah, I would just go straight through the games. Um, they generally go from easier to harder. So very few exceptions to that. Yeah. The earlier games are almost always easier than the later games. So if you're, it's, it's actually a huge mistake to think like, Oh, I'm good at sequencing games. I'm going to page through here. Oh, look at this game four. it's just a sequencing game. I'm going to do that one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you very likely are doing the hardest game in the section. Yeah. Okay. We're focusing on one perfect game at a time, right? Yeah. From the beginning of the section. Yeah. So if I say this in class all the time, if you spend 35 minutes on game one and you get them all right, that's a victory. Like mm-hmm. that's a high five because you've actually realized that you can do this and you can, if you can do one perfect game today, then maybe tomorrow you can do two perfect games or one and a half perfect games. But the point is these games are perfectly solvable and you have to be answering them with accuracy. Yeah. Okay. Um, What other final words do you want to say about games before we move on? When it comes to worlds, I would just say that a lot of times you spend time up front, which we've mentioned and people get nervous, but I will spend three, four minutes 
uh, sometimes as much as five, but then the questions go yeah. so fast. I mean, a minute to answer all the questions because you're like, oh, boom, 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 boom. And so then I'm done in six minutes, maybe seven minutes, and people continue to drag on in that game for 13 minutes, 17 minutes. Some of these games are extraordinarily tough, but with Worlds, they're extraordinarily fast. And I will frequently finish, finish a section 25, 30 minutes. And you don't need to do that. But when you do the Worlds and you're done, you're done, right? And that is not how it was when I was not doing Worlds as frequently. I would often finish like, uh, you know, a couple minutes before the end of the section, which is fine, but it's a lot nicer to finish earlier and have that luxury to spend more time if I need to, if a game is a little different and needs a little more attention. The last thing I want to say about games is that improvement tends to happen in big chunks like on logical reasoning and reading comprehension, I think that the improvement tends to happen in, in not linearly, but a little bit more like just kind of chipping away at it, mm, like mm-hmm. small, small improvements over time. Sure. But with the games, it tends to be more seismic where all the prep that you're putting in, all the practice that you're putting in, that's putting upward pressure on your score. Mm, mm-hmm. But it, it very frequently it'll it'll just it'll be fr- kids will get frustrated because it's like well I'm still at ten points you know ten mm-hmm. points ten points ten points I've been getting ten points on the games for a month mm-hmm. and I'm like well are you doing the work every day yeah is it making sense yeah mm-hmm. okay keep doing what you've been doing yeah because all of a sudden that ten points can turn into sixteen yeah and it's just it's because it's like if you get the game you tend to get the whole game. Mm-hmm. And then it goes so fast. So if right now, yeah, if you're banging your head against the wall at one game or two games or three games and you're wondering when you're going to make it to that next plateau, I just, you know, the promise is it it's going to be right around a corner. We just don't know which corner. Mm-hmm. So you keep grinding away at it. You keep working on it every day. If As long as you've got like good instruction and you're working on real LSAT games every day, eventually you will pop up into a higher level of performance. Mm -hmm. I I think that really anybody who is, you know, going to be a successful lawyer, if they kept working at the games long enough, they would be able to perfect the games. Yeah. It just, you know, to go back to your must be true theme. Yeah. The logic games are all about, Hey, if these things are true, then this other thing, must be true. Yeah. And eventually you'll get really good at putting those pieces together where it, it almost just becomes trivial. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about games? Nope. Just keep working at it. Be consistent. You'll see progress. Yeah. A little bit every day and it goes a long way. I don't know where you, you know, I don't, I can't like say on a certain date you're going to get to any certain goal. But I do know that if you're chipping away at it every day, you are making forward progress. Even if it's not immediately reflected in your score, you are increasing your understanding of the games and you're getting better every day and it is going to pay off eventually. Yeah. Let's move on to pearls versus turds. Yeah. So right now we have zero pearls, uh, nine turds and two ties. And you've pulled out yet another McGraw-Hills LSAT Logic flashcards. Logic flashcards. Yeah, I'll... (laughs) 
I'll read it. <laughs> I'll read LSAT logic flashcards. I will read this one and we'll see if it's any good. It's called logical reasoning pacing strategy. It says when the five minute warning is given, stop what you are doing and bubble in any remaining answers on the section. Once that is done, return to the question that you were working. If you have time to work further questions, you can change the answer that you had previously bubbled. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just, I'm distracted by the fact that you skipped over some text that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. You will have to give yourself this warning when practicing. There's a little parenthetical there that it's like, yeah. Sorry. When you're practicing 35 minute sections, if you want a five minute warning, you do have to give yourself that five minute warning. I'm just imagining trying to give yourself that warning. I have five minutes. Well, you need something else <laughs> to give you that warning. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So what do we think about the bubbling in guesses at five minutes? This is not bad, actually. I, I would say that for people who always finish, this doesn't apply. But for the vast majority of test takers... The five-minute warning, bubble in your answers, relieves the pressure to continue, like, to stop at any given moment and fill in the remaining answers. Now they're all filled in, so you can just continue working at a calm pace, answering questions that you can get to in the last five minutes, and uh, changing your answer um, if it happens to be different from the answers that you bubbled in for the last remaining questions. Yeah. I bubble in, um, or I recommend my classes bubble in a straight line of guesses. So all A's, all B's, all C's, all D's, all E's. Um, but not because that increases your chances or anything. It's only just because when you do that, you'll know exactly where your guesses were yeah, on the page. Yeah, for sure. Right? If you see a really long string of, of all one answer at the end of the section, that's clearly where you were guessing. Yeah. I'm going to say that I, my vote is for Pearl on this one, Ben. Yeah. I think this is actually a useful, um, the, the useful thing about this is that it, then you get your guesses for free, right? One out of five of those will be correct on average. Mm -hmm. And so you get free points and then you just calmly, carefully answer one more question uh, and maybe one more after that. And then eventually the proctor says time's up yeah. and you don't have to worry about like, Hey, do I have to bubble in my guesses now? Should I bubble in my guesses now? Should I bubble yeah. in my guesses now? Instead you yeah. just do it at the five minute warning and then you've got them all on the page and you know, you're going to get paid for those free points. I yeah. can't believe how often I hear people say, Oh, I ran out of time. I didn't even bubble in guesses. Yep. And it's like, what? how can you not bubble in? That's a fundamental like the only people who shouldn't be thinking about that are the people who are scoring 170 or higher. Mm -hmm. If you're scoring in the 160s, you probably should be guessing on some questions at the end of at least one of the sections. Yeah. And you shouldn't be finishing all four sections if you're not in the 170s. Yeah. And at this point, we're talking about bubbling, but this is equally applicable to the digital LSAT that's coming out. Um, you just go in and select an answer. Maybe you do A all across the top or something like that, but it doesn't really a matter. A click, A click, A click, A click, A click, A click, and then just hit the back button a bunch of times. Yeah. Go back to whatever question you were working on. You could even flag yeah. the question that you were on so you know where to go back to, and you just go back to that question and start working. Okay, sounds good. Let's move into this uh, email uh, with, the, with this addendum. Yeah, Okay. Go for it. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I love the podcast. I first heard about Nathan while I was studying at San Francisco State University a couple years ago. 
there was some kind of law school fair and there was a, quote, Fox LSAT booth. I took Nathan's Introducing the LSAT book that day. Since then, I learned about the podcast and just started listening to all the podcasts for the second time. Wow. We've heard that before. (laughs) I guess people don't mind listening to us twice. Thank you for all your help. I heard a previous podcast where you guys reviewed a GPA addendum. In this email, I have attached mine if you guys want to rip it to shreds. If you guys are able to, I would appreciate any and all feedback you guys can give me. Thank you in advance and happy holidays, Brenda. You would appreciate any and all feedback. I hope so. I I know that some of our (laughs) feedback may not be appreciated, but... (laughs) We tend to give some pretty brutal uh, feedback. So yeah, let's see what Brenda's got going on in this addendum. Okay. Um, All right. I am a qualified student with excellent study habits. I hate it. Okay. Cut. That's just, you're just telling us. You're just telling us. We just have to believe you. Yeah. So, sorry, but you just, you lawyers like facts. And so you need to be giving facts. And it might be a fact in your own mind that you're a qualified student with excellent study habits, but that is not a, that, that is a, it's also just your opinion. And why should we just accept that on the basis of your testimony? Yeah. They don't know you. They're evaluating you to figure out whether they believe you or not. You saying I'm a qualified student with excellent study habits does not help them to believe that about you. Yeah. Keep this in mind. Uh, On the LSAT, we are given arguments all the time with evidence and then a conclusion. And we're trying to figure out why that conclusion sucks. So I think that when people are writing these addendums, they might be thinking in the same mindset. They might think, oh, I have a conclusion or a point that I'm trying to prove. And then I'm going to go ahead and provide evidence for that point. You actually don't want to say the conclusion, ironically. It, it, um, it's so much more powerful to just say the facts and then let the reader draw the conclusion on their own. When someone draws their own conclusion from those facts, the obvious conclusion, if you present the facts well, then they will be much more convinced of that conclusion than if you come out and say it. Uh, This is the technique that lawyers use in the courtroom, right? When they're interviewing witnesses, they don't say, oh, so therefore you committed the crime. They just say, so you were there. Yes. And you really hated your boss. Yes. And you were short on cash. Yes. It's like, and then they just leave it at that, right? And everybody's thinking, oh, so they did it. They stole the money. It's like, um... As soon as you say, oh, and so you stole the money, and they're like, no, I didn't steal the money, the whole thing unravels. Like, you stick to the facts, and you let the jury, in this case the reader, draw that conclusion on their own. Yeah, here, the way she's giving this conclusion first, I'm a qualified student with excellent study habits. My eyes are just rolling into the back of my head, and I'm like, oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet you are. You know, I already know that this is an addendum, like an extra essay to explain why you have shitty grades or shitty LSAT or whatever it is. I'm not sure what you're going to tell me about yet, but <laughs> my eyes are rolling here because it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, I can't wait to see your evidence for why you're a qualified student with excellent study habits. Mm-hmm. If you are, you know, why just, do you have low grades? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You're, you're trying to force a conclusion on me without any facts, and I am very resistant to conclusions. So, okay, so we're striking that first sentence. Yep. Why don't we Next move, sentence. move on? However, my grade point average does not fully represent my competence as a student. Okay. However, um, 
Again, this is the second conclusion. So cut. Well, yeah. And it's like, you're going to show me your bad grade point average. You're not, surely you're not trying to use your bad grade point average as evidence for the fact that you have excellent study habits. Right. I mean, because your bad grade point average is evidence for the opposite of you having excellent study habits. Yeah. So I'm not just, I'm not sure where we're going with this. So what are we, what are we trying? Cause this is just another conclusion. My grade point average does not fully represent my competence. Yep. Well, what does <laughs> let's jump. Why am I supposed to think you're a good student to the facts? Yeah. yeah. I'm guessing yeah. this whole paragraph is going to be gone. The next sentence is throughout the entirety of my educational career. Okay. That, that phrase should never be used. <sighs> I remain a full-time student and a full-time employee year-round. Or I remained, sorry. I remained a full-time student and a full-time employee year-round. Okay, well, there's your first fact. I was a full-time student and a full-time employee. Um, The fact that you were a student, I guess full-time could be relevant, but we now know something that is indisputable. Well, I would like to read, I just want to strike that whole first paragraph and replace it with one sentence. Mm -hmm. I worked full-time throughout college. Yes. That's much more (laughs) straightforward and plain English. And the second you say, I worked full-time throughout college, I look at your GPA, whatever it is, and I go, well, she was working full-time. Yeah. You know, I like now I'm wanting to be on your team because I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, working full-time. I mean, that's not a very common thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not super uncommon, but it's also, you know, not the norm to be working full time and attending school full time. Yeah. I if you say I worked full time while attending school full time throughout college. Damn. <laughs> okay. That might be all you need to write. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on. Uh the next paragraph starts while at Rio Hondo Community College, I worked full time as a tutor for disadvantaged youth. Volunteered and balanced the demands of being a full-time student. Mm. Uh, I don't like actually the introduction of the idea that you volunteered. 100%. That's my worst. Uh, that's the my, the least favorite thing that you're doing in this sentence. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why don't we like I that? don't like that because at first, what, okay, a couple things here. One, you're, you, you've said that you work full-time. Presumably you're working full-time because you need the money. And so now I'm sympathetic to that and the challenges that you face as a full-time student as well. When you say that you're volunteering, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, okay, it sounds like you're trying to pull at my heartstrings. Like, oh, you're a volunteer. Oh, so I should have sympathy for you. But at the back of my mind, I'm saying, if you're so strapped for time, why are you unwisely volunteering? So it seems like a poor decision to make given your circumstances. And so now I'm like, uh, did you really have a full-time schedule? What's this volunteer stuff? If you did have a full-time schedule, why were you volunteering? That doesn't seem smart. It just raises questions. It's protesting too much. I have the exact same reaction to it. I'm like, wait, what? You're, you're trying to, you're, you're telling me that the reason why you got bad grades was because you had to work all the time, but now you're also throwing in this volunteering thing. Well, which is it? Yeah. You're muddying the waters here. Yeah. You're going to, you know, keep it short, keep it tight, make one major, you know, the, the worked full time all the way through college is such a powerful fact. Let that speak for itself. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're just going. Okay. Anyway, let, let's keep going. I think. Yeah. In fall 2012 semester, in fall to, in the fall of 2012, my work schedule increased and interfered with the course intermediate algebra math 70. Period. Hmm. Okay. Huh. I missed the deadline to withdraw and received an F. That grade does not reflect my capacity to thrive in any future course of study as I was unable to finish the course. When my work schedule decreased, I retook the course and earned an A. Uh, Too much explaining going on here. I would just say, um, boy, what would you say? I mean, I think it's good that she got an F and then an A. a, Those are two facts that need explaining, and the A is powerful. But the... My work schedule increased, and I missed the yeah, deadline to withdraw. Like, uh, no, no, no. Wah, wah. That, you're, you're bringing you're, attention you're, to that. I wouldn't bring it. Yes, to that. that looks flaky. Yeah. That doesn't look like detail oriented. That looks like now I'm like, oh well. The reason why you got an F on your transcript is because you some combination of weren't taking school seriously enough slash just were you know like you're just too all over the place and not able to keep your shit together. That doesn't yeah. seem like a lawyer. I don't think that fact helps you at all. In fact, I think that fact just hurts you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could say I missed the withdrawal. Yeah. I, fuck, I don't know. I mean, I, the retaking it and getting an A is the thing that really matters. It does. I, um, maybe I would say something, just skip over all of it. Just say, although I got an F in intermediate algebra, in fall of 2012, I retook the class and got an A. Like, let's just move quickly to the resolution. I mean, so the A, going yeah. from an F to an A shows that something happened, but clearly you understand it now. If you went from an F to a C, it'd be like, okay, well, <laughs> apparently intermediate algebra is not your thing. Um, I would, yeah, just move quickly beyond the F and start focusing on the A. I think you still have to address the F, but... Okay. Um, so now we have two sentences. We've taken two paragraphs and we've turned them into two sentences. Amazing how often that happens. Yeah. <laughs> I worked full time throughout college. Um, although I got an F in fall of 2012 in intermediate algebra, when I retook the class, I got an A. And I don't think you need to say fall 2012 either, because what does that? That's not a detail that matters. Just um, yeah, I don't, you could say in community college or something like that. Sure. Which we get is a ways, you know. A long I didn't know time if she ago. was like trying to explain a particular. She's trying to explain a particular grade on her transcript, right? Yeah, but I don't. See. I don't care about her reason for it, though. I mean, she's. Le- we're going to leave out the reason about her work schedule increasing and interfering with the course oh, and her yeah, yeah. missing the deadline. All that's like we don't. I don't care. You got an F. You retook the, the class. You got an A. <laughs> Let's talk more about the A and less about why you got the F. I agree. I thought we were talking about the fall 2012 thing. In any case, so the next paragraph, in August of 2014, at the cusp of moving to San Francisco State University to begin my studies, my stepfather suffered a major stroke. <sighs> okay, now we're just throwing more stuff at the wall. Yeah. The stroke was, I mean, I'm sorry that that happened. Uh, the stroke resulted in severe cognitive mobile disabilities and around-the-clock care. Despite how emotionally exhausting this time was, I made the difficult decision to continue with my studies. I'm sorry it happened too, but that looks like a poor decision. Yeah. Slash, it looks like you're just trying to get sympathy. This is your stepfather. 
you don't say here that you were the one who was providing around the clock care. You're just now trying to lean on emotionally exhausting. I mean, if you were around the clock caregiving for this person, then you should not have continued your studies. So it just, I don't know. I, I don't now, now we've got, look, look how muddy the water are. The waters are. We've got full-time work. We've got volunteering. We've got work schedule increasing and have missing a deadline. Now we've got the stroke thing and you may or may not have been the caretaker for your stepfather. I, I don't know. It's just too many things. It's, it's too many excuses. Yep. Uh, let's see what she says about that. Holy cow. We're only halfway through. No, it's, it's way, way too long. Yeah. Before my stepfather's stroke, my parents agreed to assist me financially while, while I lived in San Francisco so I could focus exclusively on improving my grade point average without having to work. Wait, this is inconsistent with your I worked full time throughout college. Yep. This was no longer possible due to their lack of income and incurrence. <laughs> Trying to the, use big words here that, that's yeah. causing problems, but yeah. And incurrence of substantial medical expenses caused by my stepfather's impairment. <laughs> it could just a, get rid of incurrence of, and that becomes... Due to their Incur. lack of income and substantial medical expenses caused by my father's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's too many words here. I picked up two jobs to pay university tuition and support myself. Hmm. Okay. So, wait a sec. I'm confused here because um, was this person working <laughs> no, in it, fall of 2012? It, yeah. It now looks like you've caught yourself out in a lie because... I knew you were working in 2012, but it looked like your workload was going up and down. So is that actually full-time employment? And then now here, when you started at SF State, it looks like you weren't working or you weren't going to work. Maybe she wasn't going to work, but she ended but up having work. to work two jobs. I could get that. That, that makes sense. You don't want any questions, though. As no, it's too. This is what happens when you have too many excuses. Anyway, okay. To build my resume with applicable skills, I engaged in two public service internships in San Francisco. It just again, it sounds like, what are you doing with your time? You apparently needed two jobs to pay for tuition and and other things, but then you decided to take on two internships as well. That just looks so, like a real bad decision. Yeah. I mean, which people make bad decisions. Kids make, I mean, <laughs> undergrads make terrible decisions all the time, but taking up, taking too many internships, you know, does is, is not smart when it comes at the expense of your grades, <laughs> your grades make, your grades are a much bigger influence on your, law school admission case than any internships. Yeah. I just wouldn't talk about any of this. No, I wouldn't either. It's too many excuses. During the entire time at San Francisco state university, I maintained a full-time course schedule, which included summer and winter breaks. I could not prolong my time in San Francisco for my family's sake to not delay my graduation date. I took up to 19 units in a semester. I why why 
Why, why does your family need you to graduate early? Well, I, I, what I get, I'm sensing here is that moving to San Francisco was really expensive. San Francisco mm. is an expensive place to live. Yeah. But now this is making it look like a bad decision to move to San Francisco state. I mean, like, why didn't you live at home and commute? Why was San Francisco state the place where you had to study? I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, I do feel for you here, Brenda, but I, it's like you're, it's, this is, I'm, I'm getting a sense of just sort of like complaining about the high cost of living in San Francisco, which is, you know, you chose to go there. Yeah. Okay. So she continues on Friday nights. I flew home to take care of my stepfather on the weekends. I traveled back to San Francisco on Monday mornings and from the airport went straight to class. Psychologically, I was stretched the farthest I have ever been stretched. The way I see it is that it was my job to be there for my stepfather the same way he has been there for me since I moved to this country at age seven. (laughs) I mean, that okay, so that's some interesting facts. It shows that you had a lot on your plate. Um, And maybe you shouldn't have decided to keep going to school. You should have taken a break from school and so forth. Uh, Given all the, the uncertainty around this, I... I think this would be so much more powerful to just say I had to work full time. And um, by the way, here's what happened with that one class. And then I I feel like there might be some benefit to maybe just one sentence alluding to what she's learned. So that the, the, because in my mind, if I were reviewing this, I'd be like, okay, you worked too much. That hurt your grades. Are you going to do that again (laughs) in law school? She just needs to show it, not tell it. I mean, let's... Yeah, let's read her last paragraph because that's what she's attempting to do. Okay. Because these circumstances impacted my grade point average, my transcript does not fully demonstrate my academic potential as a law student. Since then, I have grown. My decision-making skills have improved. My intellectual abilities have been sharpened. And my approach to schoolwork is different, which are all imperative to my long-term future. Bad bad use of imperative and just cut all that. Yeah. All it is is telling. Yep. You you either have to show that or just don't even mention it. Whoa, this is interesting. I kindly asked the acceptance committee to holistically consider my recommendations, work, volunteer, and significant life experiences as they are more indicative of my future performance as a law student at your outstanding institution. Mm. Uh, you're telling them what to look for. Uh, no, actually, the most indicative thing is your grade point average. Like, despite all this stuff that's going on in your life, (laughs) like, you're going to school, you're going to law school, which means you're going to have to figure out how to get good grades despite everything that's happening or could happen in your life. And that's true for every student. Also, Brenda, I just want to make it clear, they're going to give no shits about any of this if you don't show them the right LSAT score. The, the very best way that you can um, demonstrate your decision-making skills, your intellectual abilities, your approach to schoolwork, the best way you can show them all of that stuff is by getting a kick-ass LSAT score. Yeah, just like you did with your A in intermediate algebra. Yep. Like It's like, okay, I don't know what she did. I don't know how what happened. I don't even know why she got an F. Like if you delete all those side notes about withdrawing. But clearly you figured it out. 
yep. convinced. End of story. Yeah, this there's way too many excuses in here. The fact that she throws in the since I moved to this country at age seven at the end Whoa. of the second to last mm. paragraph, that's mm. just like a very obvious plea for sympathy. You know, and <clears throat> I mean, whether she intended to do that or not, that's how it reads. And she she just you got it. You're making way too many excuses here. And you're not you, you've actually other than that, a I mean, I like the flying back and forth thing, although the flying back and forth thing then does make the, it just makes the decision, like you should have dropped out of school. I mean, you should, you should have taken a semester off or a year off. Yeah. Like if you do mention that fact, which clearly shows that you have a lot on your plate, like it's just a fact and it's like, wow, okay, you're busy. I would, you'd, I feel like you just have to say like... I I wouldn't do that again or something. I, I feel like it's it's easier to leave it out. But if you were to say it, like you have to show that you've learned something, that that was a mistake or something like, you know, in retrospect, I should have taken the semester off or something like that. I don't know. Like you have to show maturity and how is it going to be going forward? Yeah. And I wonder if, if she has an increasing grade trend to point out she should or recalculate your GPA without that F and without that you know, semester or year or whatever that you were flying back and forth to go work, to go help your stepfather and yeah. show like a higher GPA. So a higher GPA in your final year or an, an, a recalculated GPA without these things, um, those, if they're, you know, if they are points in your favor, you would want to include them. But otherwise all this is, is just excuse after excuse after excuse. And nobody's going to really care because they want to know who am I getting now? Mm-hmm. What this is demonstrating to me is, like it looks like a person who makes a lot of excuses. Yeah. That's just not what they want. You show them a big LSAT score and the entire thing changes. Like you don't even need to write this addendum, you know, or yeah. maybe you need to explain the F or whatever, but you show them a 165 or a 170 and they go, Oh yeah. Okay. She's got the horsepower. She's got the work ethic. She could do it. Yeah. Especially if you say, uh, I worked full time, <laughs> like two sentences, I worked full time and, um, I, I don't plan to do that in law school. I worked like, full time. Okay. I flew back and forth taking care of my stepfather who had had a stroke. In retrospect, it wasn't the best decision. I probably should have taken some time off of school. Yeah. Or I, I've arranged, <laughs> I've set up my life so that I have. I don't need to work. While I I'm will in law not school. be working full time in law school. I will not be taking care of my stepfather who had a stroke during law school. Yeah. I mean, you just can't do those things. Those, those are not <laughs> options. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Should we wrap it up? Yeah. Thanks for writing in. Yeah. Thanks, Brenda. That was show number 179. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.